0: Friend, shall we bow our heads before we begin? Let us pray. Lord, in your grace and mercy, send your Holy Spirit that your words may come alive and that it would sink deeply into our hearts and that it would produce fruit, Lord. That even as you call us to follow you, we would count the cost and follow you. Grant, Lord, that your words and your words alone remain in our hearts and the words of a man would fall to the ground, and that it would never return empty, Lord, that your word would bear fruit in our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Uh, We're coming to this particular period in the week where it's the final week of Lent, uh, the last seven days. And uh, traditionally, we have Palm Sunday occurring at this time. Uh, I don't know how some other churches celebrate it. Uh, other places will tend to do all these palm crosses. Uh, some churches, on the other hand, will celebrate with children running in, waving palms and uh, you know, riding on donkeys and so forth. But it's intended to be a joyous celebration, but a stark contrast uh, of Good Friday, uh, Morning Thursday, Good Friday, and eventually uh, Easter uh, and the resurrection that comes after. And so it's in this whole period where if you've lived for a long life, you probably have heard all these Palm Sunday messages over and over again. Uh, You might become very hardened, I don't know, or desensitized to, okay, we've had this every year, we go and look for all these palm trees and potong, potong until no more botak tree already. Uh, So, what's so different and how do we renew and refresh ourselves? This year, uh, I thought I'd actually focus on a passage in Mark chapter 8 that deals with a crucial question of the identity of Jesus. And not only his identity, but the identity of the followers. Because Palm Sunday is also talking about who Jesus is, his identity as King of Kings, Uh, the one promised of old, the Messiah who comes, who ushers in the kingdom of David that is a victorious kingdom against all the nations. I want to, to set in the background that the identity of the Messiah from the Old Testament all the way to the New Testament, the Hebrew people and the Jews understood the Messiah as one who is of the line of David, who is a king, but a king who has prophecies that he will be king forever, but not only that, he would conquer all the enemies of Israel and subjugate them. And Israel is living in this time under Roman rule, under oppression by many parties around, and also against uh, political uh, disharmony within their own nation. And so with all these expectations, Uh, they have these expectations of this uh, leader who will come and do a marvellous political, military and also financial transformation of Israel. Now, if you want to draw a parallel, think about Malaysia. Who is the Messiah as far as Malaysia is concerned? (laughs) Who do the people think is the one who will bring in this military golden age and we realize that many people have different expectations uh, different ideas and different uh, ways of achieving what that future would look like but underlying all of this is who is the person that will do this a matter of identity a matter of character. And a matter of what he will then do as a result of his identity. So we turn to, to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8 is right in the middle of the Gospel of, uh, of Mark, and it would be the turning point when Jesus, who is now at Caesarea Philippi, so let me read that. Uh, Chapter 8, verse 27, and if you want to fill in the blanks in the sermon outline, it's in the bulletin in the middle. Chapter 8, verse 27, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around around Caesarea Philippi and on the way he asked them, who do people say I am? Now, Caesarea Philippi is the furthest part away from Jerusalem, uh, which is far enough to still be considered as part of Israel, but really, really far away. But Caesarea Philippi is also a Roman outpost. It is an area where uh, it's called Caesarea because it was rebuilt after uh, a disaster struck it, and it was given the name of Caesarea to remind the people that this is of Caesar. And so for an announcement to be made that this is the Messiah is uh, politically like going to Putrajaya, <laughs> right, and saying uh, the new ruler is here. It is as explosive as that in terms of what is happening. But it is a, maybe a, a band of people who is going out. As far as Jerusalem is concerned, that's a small place. It's not the centre of Jerusalem, which is the centre of economy and power. But as far as Rome was concerned, that is a base of theirs. And Jesus asks this question, who do people say I am? What do the masses say? Now, if I'm trying to relate this to to our own current day context, it's almost like someone saying, what does the church say about Jesus? What do other people say about Jesus? And all of the disciples answer in one category of answer. Uh, They replied, verse 28, some say john the baptist others say elijah and still others one of the prophets in other words all these answers are in the category of jesus is like a prophet a prophet of old a holy man who god is with him but then jesus turns around and asks his question verse 29 but what about you he asked who do you say i am now, it is, uh, it's, it's not so apparent in the English, but in the Greek, where this is translated, the order of that grammar is, you. Who do you say I am? It's a very personal question, meant individually and corporately to the disciples. And as much as he has asked his disciples, he also asks you, all followers who at some point would have professed Jesus as Lord, who... Do you say I am? And Peter answered, You are the Messiah. Okay, the Messiah is the Hebrew translation of the Greek word Christos. Jesus Christos, Christos is titled Jesus the Messiah, the promised one. The question is: when Peter acknowledges you are the Messiah, what is his idea of the Messiah? Political ruler, military king? one who will conquer and demolish all the enemies that are surrounding that will over overwhelm all these tax situations now again trying to bridge that 2000 year gap. try and think about malaysia malaysia when we talk about a political leader many people think okay this guy is going to come and he's going to reduce our taxes to zero He's going to make us a nation that is greater than Singapore, Thailand, all our neighbouring countries. We always think in terms of the financial, the military, economic maybe, and also power and influence. And everybody wants to be a close friend of this person. Possibly that's what uh, Peter was saying. But Jesus warned them, verse 30, Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about this. Now, uh, that, again, in the Greek, has a very unusual word which is close to scolded or rebuked. In other words, he very strongly told him, don't tell anyone about this. Why? Well, maybe because in the next few verses, Mark writes to sell why Jesus tells them the, the Messiah that you are thinking about is not the same Messiah that I am going to be. Now, he doesn't dispute that he is the Messiah, neither does he deny all the prophecies. In other words, it will happen. But the issue is when and how. So, I would say Peter rightly identifies Jesus as the Messiah, but he wrongly rejects Jesus' role to suffer, be rejected, and be killed before rising again. We see this in verse 31. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer. Must suffer. Must suffer. How many of you you choose your leaders on the basis that they must suffer? He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, must be killed, and after three days, rise again. I'd like you to ponder and think about this. Peter's idea of the Messiah, the leader, the one who will bring salvation and this golden age, if you want to call it that, as opposed to uh, what Jesus is saying, that this ruler, that this Messiah that will bring in the Davidic kingdom must suffer, must be killed, that he would be rejected. Now, rejected here, not just by the Pharisees in Galilee, All this while, Jesus is traveling around in Galilee, but he is saying now that he will be rejected by the elders, you know, pretty much like the entire leadership of the church or the entire leadership of, you know, all the key people in the the church, uh, that he would be rejected by the teachers of the law and the chief priests. So the widening scale of all the religious authorities and as far as the jewish people is concerned the center of religion and the center of economy in the jewish people that is utter rejection by his people hang on if you are peter and you are thinking wait this guy is going to be our king but he's going to be rejected by all the key political financial economic and religious leaders how is he going to be king Is he not going to subjugate and dominate them and show them by his power and his popularity and his ability to do all these miracles that he is king? So Peter rightly, in a way, responds. uh, he, He took him aside. Verse 39, he spoke plainly about this. Jesus spoke plainly about this. Now, you recall last week, uh, we mentioned that Jesus spoke in parables, but this is one instance where He's speaking very clearly. I'm going to be rejected. He, he, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be rejected, and I will be killed. But on the third day, I will rise again. Notice that every time He says uh, what we call this His passion narrative, that He must suffer, be rejected, uh, killed. He also adds, he will rise again after three days. Now, he speaks plainly about this. In other words, there is no way that he is beating around the bush, telling some analogy about some other mysterious thing. They clearly understood that he was going to die, that he was on the road to Jerusalem to die, and that these people were on the road with him, following him to Jerusalem, which meant, are they also going to die? Now, he spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside, verse 32, and began to rebuke him. scolded Jesus. Now, Peter is being very nice now. He said, okay, don't don't scold Jesus in front of everybody. Take him aside. Very good uh, uh, leader here. Okay, you want to confront someone, confront someone face to face, aside. He does this. But the irony of this is the follower is rebuking the teacher and telling the teacher no 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 this is not how you're supposed to do this okay you're not supposed to die you are supposed to do uh, do we do this i'm sure you do <laughs> we scold god we tell god god how can you do this how can you allow this to happen why do you allow these kind of stupid things to happen we complain about our leaders, maybe not directly in front of them. Some of us are not like Peter. You know, your bosses do something wrong, you don't like it, and then you go and gossip. with mean, What kind of stupid thing? But Peter does this. He openly rebukes uh, Jesus, and Jesus flips around verse 33. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, now, uh, you need to enter into the scene uh, and to see this drama that is unfolding that Mark writes very graphically. Peter takes Jesus aside, rebukes Jesus. Jesus looks at the disciples. No, first, he, he rebukes Peter. Then, uh, he in front of the disciples, pretty much looking at them, saying, Don't be like Peter. <laughs> He rebuked Peter in front of the disciples so that it would be an example for his disciples to not have the same idea. And he says, Get behind me, Satan. He said, You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Get behind me, Ha Satan, the adversary you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Now, is Jesus basically saying that Peter has been possessed by the devil and, uh, you know, Satan is now working out this thing? Uh, not really. When he says, get behind me, that particular term, get behind me, uh, Satan, is, is almost a, a, the equivalent of telling to the disciple, get back in line get back in line and follow my lead but what peter was doing was exactly the same thing that the devil was doing in tempting jesus in the wilderness if you are the son of man why don't you turn these stones to bread that will be power that will be material effectiveness solve all the hunger problems and all the sickness problems of this world and everybody will acknowledge you as lord why don't you do it that way or why don't you do some supernatural thing fly from the temple and land safely and everyone will say wow that's like superman you'd be so popular everybody would want to make you king or why don't you just bow to me and i will give you everything you just need to say once and kneel just symbolic gesture only do that and every everything that i have is all yours all power and control to you to yours take the shortcut (laughs) is what peter is saying don't go this way the way of suffering death rejection torture shame humiliation and death 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 you know the eternal death so peter is putting across in a human way the same temptation to jesus jesus that one uh, that particular role of yours as savior that destiny of yours that uh, objective of yours no la, la not good don't do it that way there are easier ways to do this Snap your finger. Almost like, you know, our young adults now, snap your finger like a Thanos. Things will just change. Peter confronts, sorry, Jesus confronts Peter and says, you only have merely human concerns. Now, if you put yourself in Peter's shoes, are we also in this same shoe? Do you have the concerns of God in mind? When you think about things, the things that keep you awake, are they things about your business, your wealth, your family, the well-being of yourself and your family? And by and large, nine out of ten times, that will probably be it, yes. I'm worried about my children's future, I'm worried about the livelihood of my children, their careers and their prospects. So my question is, do you have the concerns of God in mind? are you doing what God wants you to do? Do you even know what God wants you to do? Is that keeping you awake or it's other things? Then Jesus called out to the crowd. So imagine this picture, right? There's a private conversation happening between Jesus and Peter which gets open up to the disciples, which now gets opened up to the crowd. Verse 34, then he called, he being Jesus, he called the crowd to him along with his disciples, come, and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Jesus, in a way, had initially asked his question, who do you say I am? But now he turns the question to them. them. And he does this in this way, Whoever wants to be my disciple, whoever wants to identify themselves as my disciple, my follower, this is how they will be identified. As those who must, must deny themselves. Now, you have to see the number of times that Jesus used this kind of must. Uh, In other words, it's imperative, complete, absolute. Because of Jesus' identity as the Messiah, He must suffer many things, be rejected, must be killed, and then rise on the third day. Now, if we are to identify as disciples of Jesus, then those who identify as disciples must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow Jesus. So if ever there is a simple definition of what a Christian is, he is a follower of Jesus. He is one who has denied himself and has taken up their cross. Now we need to unpack. What does it mean to deny yourself? What does it mean to deny yourself? Some of you over Easter, you think, I am denying myself by not eating the chocolate cake, or I am denying myself by fasting, or I am denying myself by not going on social media. Yes, that is a form of denial. But this self-denial is in the context of whoever wants to be a follower of Jesus. In other words, the denial is not for the sake of denial itself. The denial is in order to follow a higher authority. So self-denial, in this case, is about giving up your rights in order to be at the disposal of a higher call. In other words, I deny myself in order that I may be more available to Jesus. Now, if in my self-denial, let's say I, I go fasting, which effectively means I have more time, uh, I don't eat. let's say if you don't eat lunch, if you don't eat breakfast, or you don't eat dinner or some meal, therefore if I'm not doing those things, the whole idea is that I would basically be at the disposal of doing that which draws me closer to Christ. But if I do that, and what I do instead is look at pictures of food, or I go and watch a movie, or I just distract myself in other ways, that is not putting myself at disposal to that higher call. It is basically still distracting yourself, just denying yourself for the sake of denial. And so fasting, for whatever reason, is so that you may be able to deny yourself and draw closer to God. And the big challenge for people who go on a fast is that when they go on a fast, they get very irritable. Hungry, ma. <laughs> you're hungry, you're like a bear. <laughs> you're very frustrated, no food, no... And then you, you start scolding people. That that's, that's really not submitting yourself at a higher call. But let me give you another definition of to deny yourself. And, and these are a few definitions from people who admittedly know what denial is all about, denial of the self. Let me read to you what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said. To deny himself uh, is to be aware only of Christ and no more of self. To see only him who goes before and no more the road which is too hard for us. Once more, all that self-denial can say is he leads the way. Keep close to him. Let me try and repeat that again. To deny the self is to be aware only of Christ, no more of self, to see only him who goes before and no more the road which is too hard for us. Once more, all that self-denial can say is he leads the way. Keep close to him. Uh, this is Dietrich Bonhoeffer in the book The Cost of Discipleship, found on page 97. If you want to read that, it's a wonderful, transforming book. But what does it mean to deny the self is to look at the person of Christ and where he's going and to not look at the road on which he's taking you? You know, some of us, when we want to go on a trip, <laughs> right, we say, okay, where are we going? How are we going? Where are we going to stay? Nice toilet or not? Nice scenery or not? And if the answers about the environment and the road there are not good, you say, I don't want. Not many people say, wherever you go, as long as it is with you, that is where I want to be. Some of our guys might be writing that down, romantic stuff to say to your <laughs> girlfriend or your wife, you know no matter where, as long as we are together. But that is what Jesus is saying. Follow me means follow me. Not look at the road and where you're going. And this is where the disciples are. They've been walking with him, sometimes hungry, sometimes in the middle of nowhere, but always with him. What does it mean to, therefore, in your own mind, deny yourself in order to listen to this higher call? I, for one, if you ever want to sit down with me, can tell you what it costs me. To deny myself is to basically realize that Christ has a role in my life and where He calls, I will go. Now, as I went into seminary and as I went into ministry, my biggest concern was what about my children? They don't have a choice in this it's not as if they are at a stage where they can say i object (laughs) i don't want to be moved around like a pastor going from one state to another state but in my wrestling with god you know what he said his answer to me was where else do you think you'd be safer do you think you'd be safer with me in the palm of my hand or where you want to be outside of where my will is for you. And so as long as my family understood that, that we are discerning God's call and we are following Him because that's where He wants us to be, so we followed. Thankfully, we are all together in this. But what does that mean for you? To deny yourself, to take up uh, your cross. You know, this second portion here about taking up the cross... Uh, can I get help moving to the next slide? He hasn't moved. What does it mean to take up the cross? Yeah, just hold there. So to take up the cross and follow Jesus, Edward Schweizer says this, The cross is at the heart of the gospel and taking up the cross is a central requirement of discipleship. The cross represents the oppression caused by humans who oppose the faith and witness of Christians. It does not refer to bearing patiently with the aches and pains of life. This is Edward Schweizer. Uh, He writes in uh, this uh, commentary, the portrayal of the life of faith in the Gospels of Mark, interpreting the Gospels. Now, why is this particularly important? Bearing the cross means many things to many people. You know, sometimes people will come to me, my cross ah, is my son. He's such a pain to me. (laughs) Or my cross is my mother-in-law. Or my cross is this difficult person in the office. Well, maybe. But it's not really in that sense that way. The way the, the, the narrative comes to us, the cross is the one that is the oppression and the persecution uh, that comes when you are bearing witness let me say this again the cross represents the oppression caused by humans and the devil who oppose the faith and witness of christians in other words if someone is persecuting you and uh and and uh, torturing you and really denigrating and hitting you all the time because of your faith when you share your faith when you live out your faith so if you are refusing to enter into corruption and bribery and lying and people persecute you that is bearing the cross now as a as a bit of an aside but related to this this evening at 5 pm uh, they're having a gathering together at the speaker's corner in penang Uh, uh, in a way to basically remember Pastor Raymond Koh, Amri Chekmat, Ruth, and uh, Helmi. Okay, people who have disappeared. But these people fit into this mold. I'm not talking about their religious inclinations. But these people, in a way, for the good that they have been doing, all of these people have been working with the poor trying to alleviate their condition and sharing their faith when people ask them. They ask you, why are you doing this? Because I'm Christian or because I'm Shia or whatever. But because of what they do and the pervasive influence that they have, human oppression, demonic if you want to call it that, has basically taken them away. Now that is bearing the cross. How many times have you been hearing about how Pastor Raymond in his in his old time received bullets, received threatening letters, stop what you're doing, or else we're gonna kill you? And yet he perseveres because he is living out his faith, he's living out his calling, that's where God calls him to be. Now I read this text. And I read our environment in Malaysia and I feel afraid because what I am called to do is supremely dangerous if I really do what I do. If I really do what the text calls me to do, that's effectively asking for a death sentence to disappear because it's bearing testimony in an environment where you will be hated, And you have people who would be willing to kill you in order to silence you. But Christ says, Christ, not me. Christ says, if you would be my disciple, deny yourself. You must deny yourself. Take up your cross. So brothers and sisters, you are all disciples of Christ because at some point in time you profess the faith and says, "I want to be a member of this church. I believe Jesus is my Lord." So if you are a disciple, you must ask yourself, "My identity as a follower, disciple of Christ, am I denying myself to follow Him? Am I denying myself in order to follow Him? What is your cross?" i'm sorry if i'm being very loud and very hard but what is your cross i have to ask this myself what is the cross that i bear that i might follow jesus if you don't know what your cross is maybe you really need to think about this because this is the standard definition of the identity of a follower of christ and you brothers and sisters have to wrestle with this question where are you standing up? Now, if you want an idea, one of the things that you might want to think about, and I'm not saying you have to, is to stand together with this group of people at 5 o'clock because they are standing up for truth and they're saying, look, these people have disappeared for doing what is right. And the inquiry says, people in authority and power did this. Okay? I'm not stating myself, I'm stating the Suhakam report. The Suhakam report says Bukit Aman, special branch, and some state religious authorities were involved, complicit. Who did it exactly? Don't know. So Suhakam has said this. And if you are people followers of the way, this is what happens to those who truly follow and do what Jesus asked them to do. So the least we could do is spend one hour and stand with them and say, we want the truth, we want an answer. And the government is then pressured to do something about this. Jesus goes on. Okay, You must see this whole thing as a continuation. What good is it, uh, before that, verse 35, For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Bit of an oxymoron, a a contradictory statement. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Jesus redefines life in terms of a relationship with him and the gospel. So if you're trying to save life according to how you understand life, you will lose that life. But if you lose what you think is life in order to be in relationship with me, Jesus, and the gospel, that is life according to Jesus. He then goes, What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Now, Sometimes I find it hard to get around this. But let me ask you a question which uh, once my parents asked me. How much do you think a life is worth? how much do you think a life is worth? One million, ten million, twenty million, one billion? What Jesus is essentially saying here is that even the world is not worth that one life. It is not worth selling your life, giving up your life in order to gain the whole world And in that process, lose what true life is all about. That true life is in Christ, not in the gaining of the world. And and you will realize this, that in, in many people, life is not about the number of cars that I have, the number of condos, the number of properties that I have. Life is spent predominantly in relationships. And the primary relationship here is in a relationship with Christ. Jesus rejects the role of the disciple to gain the whole world. In a way, he says something which has uh, three false beliefs. Three false beliefs. One, no one has ever gained the whole world. If you think in the entire history of the world, nobody has ever gained the whole world. If you say Alexander the Great, he only conquered that portion. Never the whole world. Genghis Khan, yeah, maybe a larger portion, but never the whole world. So the first false belief we have is that there could be anyone who can gain the world. Second false belief, even if you could gain it, you can't hold on to it. No one has remained king, emperor of the whole world and held on to it. And the third false belief is even if you could gain the whole world, hold on to it, you can't take it with you. You die. (laughs) And so Jesus is pointing to this false belief to these disciples and says, your role is not to try and gain domination over this whole world. Because if you do this, you will forfeit your life. You will lose your life and you can't exchange your life your soul for all the things in the world the only way to gain your life is to follow jesus to believe and follow him cross-bearing as a follower of jesus means nothing less than giving one's whole life over to following him a jewish culture understood carrying the cross as a form of torture shame and being cursed are we i know we are at different stages are we at a stage where we understand this that we're willing to be ashamed even tortured i tell you that many of our brothers and sisters in china in iran iraq in places of persecution and in malaysia too They know that following Christ would for them mean very likely torture, shame, abuse, death. And they are faithful unto death. It's a very uncomfortable message to hear on a Palm Sunday. We want the popular Jesus, we don't really want the suffering Jesus but his identity is tied together he's the messiah of the eternal kingdom but he's also the son of man who suffers because that is his role for the salvation of many how about you do you identify as a christ follower Uh, can you move to the next slide please So, friends, in the days to come, as we approach Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, and Easter Sunday, uh, that's a picture of a patibulum. A patibulum is the beam that is the center cross for the cross. It is said historically that you don't carry the entire cross, you carry that patibulum. So, people of Israel's time that Jesus uh, was speaking to, they would often see Uh, People carrying crosses like this who had been whipped, who had been flogged, who were about to be crucified on a very torturous, painful death. So the Jewish people knew. If Jesus is giving this imagery, it is the most powerful image of renunciation of violence. It is the most powerful way to basically say, I am surrendering to follow Jesus even if it means death through torture, through persecution, shame. And not only that, the Jews understand that if you are crucified on the cross, you are cursed. Cursed by the Jewish people. Would you be willing to go through that? So Jesus is not exactly saying, uh, you know, give me a little bit. He wants all all of you, total dedication over to you, to Him. Would you spend these next few days asking yourself, if I'm a follower of Christ, what is the cross that I'm carrying? What is the oppression that I go through in order that I may bear witness to the gospel in doing what is right? And if our life is too comfortable, maybe that's a wake-up call in the same way that it was a wake-up call for the disciples themselves. I quickly showed this picture. Uh, This is Philip Ng Chitat. Close to about 10 years ago, I met him, and uh, he shared his testimony about how he became a Christian. He was not formally a Christian. But this is what he said in a video interview. Uh, I have discovered that all of us are broken. Philip is the richest man in Singapore. Apparently, $8.7 billion Singapore dollars. And this is what he said about this. I've discovered that all of us are broken. We all have a missing piece. For me, I discovered that the missing piece was God in Jesus Christ. I mean, you, you can go and look for that interview. Uh, it's uh, You just search for his name and, and it will come up. But one other thing he said, you know, he says, I've always been looking for the best, the best, the best, and I wanted the best life, and I realized that the best life is in Christ Jesus. Then he began to reorientate his life, and he does things differently now. It's not a shareholder value or bottom line. It was, what does it mean to follow Jesus, even if it means being ridiculed? We come to Mark 11. The children shout, Hosanna, which uh, is, is taken from Psalm 118.25. It says, Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Hosanna. Uh, I think in the Hebrew, it goes, Ona Adonai. Hoshia Anna Adonai. But Adonai is actually the, the, the word that they use to replace Yahweh. That's why it's in capital, Lord, L O R D, capitalized. Lord, save us, Lord, grant us success. Now, over time, this got truncated to Hosanna. Okay, if you wanted to say it like a Hebrew word, Hosia, Anna, Hosiana for short. Now uh, it continues in Psalm one one eight verse twenty six a blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You might have heard this song before, uh, Baruch Haba Vashem Adonai, or Baruch Haba Vashem Yahweh. The the Hebrew text is Yahweh, but how the Jews pronounce it is Adonai. Baruch Hashem, uh, Bara, no, Baruch Hashem, uh, Barah Adonai. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So this is what they shout in the streets and they acknowledge him as the Messiah. But this is the one that's missing. They don't continue this uh, statement. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. Psalm 118, verse 26b. Okay? Uh, that squiggly tauge at the bottom there, that's Hebrew. Hosha na. Save us. Grant us success. It's not just save us. It's save us. Uh, please save us, Lord. Please grant us success. That's what they shout. They want a saviour. And the Lord has showed us salvation comes through following Him. Mark ends in a very uh, hanging way. He it, it ends with this particular statement. It says there, I read from uh, verse 9, Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosianna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. So they knew this is about the Messiah. Then verse 11, Jesus entered Jerusalem, went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now contrast that with what is said in Psalm 118, verse 26b. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. House of the Lord is temple. From the temple, we bless you. Jesus arrives at the temple. There is no welcome. There is no greeting. There is no come, Lord. And Jesus observes and goes away. We no longer subscribe to this temple in Israel. Jesus himself as well as his disciples says, you, you are the temple of God. Where the Spirit of God is, there is his temple. But what would happen if Jesus came to you? And he does. He comes to you in the form of the least of these people. The children, the poor, the marginalized, the foreigners, the persecuted, those who have been oppressed is there a welcome that comes from your heart that says from my temple to the lord you are welcome we bless you do you shout hosanna to the lord lord save us and lead us in the way you will call us to sorry can you go back to that last one I bring this uh, application uh, point. Just bring it down, yeah. Well, you have it in your outline, okay? My question to you, who do you, in the same way that Jesus asked his disciples, he asked you as well, who do you say I am to you, Jesus. Who is Jesus to you, really? Don't talk about what the church says or what other people say. Who? You. Who do you say Jesus is to you? Do you have his concerns uh, in mind? Are you concerned with the things that God wants to do? Or are you more concerned that God blesses what you want to do? Have you spent time asking the Lord, Lord, what do you want me to do in all of this? And who do you say you are? Are you a follower of Jesus? Are you in that particular mold and definition, one who denies himself daily, who takes up his cross and follows Jesus? Are you denying yourself in order to follow Jesus, in order to have true life, not the life that this world gives but the life that christ gives what will that look like what discomforts do you have to go through in order to be following jesus you really need to ask yourself where is jesus in this time in this place in penang in malaysia in trinity and where he is i better be helping and doing what He is calling me to do because that's where he is If the mission team is doing stuff, if the church school is doing stuff, if McCallum is doing stuff, there's so many things going on. And you might say, no, I don't think God is calling me there. So then where is God calling you to? Because whichever way it is, it is a form of carrying the cross. It's a way of overcoming your fear in order to face those, to bear witness to the gospel and the testimony. And therefore, when he comes to your temple, will you bless him from your heart of hearts? Will you receive him? Will you follow him? Let us pray. Dear Lord, it is so easy to be waving the palm branches and calling for peace a peace not according to our understanding but yours lord but you tell us that life is not in the gaining of things but life is in following you is in giving our full authority and denying of ourselves lord that we might follow you teach us to follow your way and teach us to trust you even when at times we are very fearful lord of the consequences Help us, Lord, like Peter, to keep our eyes on you when we step out of the boat. And in so doing, Lord, help us to be able to walk on water. We commit this to you, Lord. May your word never return empty, Lord. And I pray for a faithfulness in doing your will for all my brothers and sisters, as I do for myself too. Pray and ask all this, O oh Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.